Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to season two of Scaling Your Startup. This is our third episode on episode one. We had Craig Zingerlein from Growth University and Alan Chen from Fitbod join me to go over key growth metrics and the best way to track them. And on episode two, we had Mahek from Skillbank and Kately from Lately. They shared insights about social marketing, TikTok, and short-form social media writing, how to write great copy. You can see those first two episodes at thisweekinstartups.com slash scale, S-C-A-L-E, as in you're going to scale your startup. On episode three, today, two of my highest performing SaaS startups, Grin.co and LeadIQ.com. These are two amazing startups. They both went through our accelerator. We invested millions of dollars in each company. I'm on the board of both companies. Both companies are doing over $10 million in revenue. Yum, yum. They're going to share their secrets about how to scale your sales team. Both of them have dozens of people on their sales teams, but they both started when I invested with, they were two-person companies. So they really have a ton of knowledge. Stick with us. Season two of Scaling Your Startup is brought to you by... Our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist. LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Go to linkedin.com slash your startup to post your first job for free. That's linkedin.com slash Y-O-U-R-S-T-A-R-T-U-P. Terms and conditions apply. And NetSuite. Don't let old software and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. Upgrade to NetSuite, the world's number one cloud business system. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash twist. Okay, Brandon, you're up first. Tell us what you've learned. Well, thanks, Jason. I appreciate you having me and looking forward to walking the group through scaling your startup and how we've approached sales. So what I'm going to start with uh, in this talk is a little bit about our story. So a little bit about Grin, my background, uh, how we've got to where we're at. I'm going to touch a little bit on what I call prerequisites to scale. So these are things that you need to figure out prior to really digging into scale. And then I'm going to go into the next section, which is things that you actually do need to figure out. So uh, topics that need to be addressed before you can really start to scale a sales and marketing engine. I'm going to touch briefly on testing your engine. So what do I mean by that is uh, how do you test to make sure that your investments are, are hopefully going to work out and you minimize downside? And then I'm going to end with hiring leadership. So this is really what we're trying to get to when we think about scaling a sales and marketing org is bringing in the VP who can ultimately take the function and scale it to the next level. So as I said, I want to start with our story and a little bit about Grin. So Grin is a SaaS platform for creator management and influencer marketing. Our whole philosophy is that there should be no middleman in between you, the brand, and your creators. So we're not a marketplace. We're not a network. Again, we're software as a service. We're number one in you know what's arguably a very noisy and competitive category. And inside sales is how we've achieved that. We count you know many of the world's most innovative brands as our customers, brands like Allbirds and Fashion Nova. We're at 175 employees, and we're growing very rapidly. You know, at 175 percent year over year at scale, and we've always grown fast, right? So. In the early stages, you know, we've used inside sc- sales to scale the business, you know, very rapidly. And when you look at us on a benchmark basis, we went from one to 10 million in ARR in just under two years. Uh, and to put that in context, you know, Shopify and SendGrid, it took two and a half and almost three and a half years to get to the same benchmark. So now while we're, we're well beyond this 10 million in ARR benchmark, we went through the early stages of growth very fast. And I think that's important uh, when we're going to walk through the, the strategies for how we did that. Before we get into really how to scale sales, I want to talk about a couple things I think are very important prerequisites to scale. And the first is product market fit. So product market fit, as I describe it, is your product elegantly solves a problem for a known market, right? So this means you've identified a problem, you have technology that solves that problem, and you have a known market that you're, you're selling your product to. And the thing about product market fit, there's lots of literature online about what is product market fit? How do you know if you have it? And I'm going to touch on that briefly. But I think the thing that I found that was most interesting is that it comes on quite slow, which is deceiving. There wasn't this like light bulb moment where all of a sudden it's we have product market fit. The way I think about it is there's really a continuum, right? It's not binary zero and one. 
And uh, we started to understand that we had product market fit early on. And then we spent time thinking about how we could strengthen that. If you have to ask if you have product market fit, you likely don't have it because the indicators that start to show up are, are obvious, right? And those are things like customer love and engagement. So how are your reviews online? How does the product engagement look? You do see your sales cycle and your sales velocity start to compress, right? Meaning that when you get prospects who have the problem on a demo, they sign up. And then you also have high retention and renewal rate versus benchmarks. So product market fit is incredibly important to be very confident that you have strong product market fit before investing heavily into growth. Before you, you have product market fit, you should just go slow, right? It's not about rapid scale. It's really about learning and understanding, talking to customers, figuring out the problems that they have and how you can build product to solve those problems. How do you sell it? And you should really go slow. After you feel like you have product market fit, it's all about reliable and predictable growth, which we're going to talk to, we're going to talk about today. This is when you start building a sales and marketing org, uh, accelerating growth. And the whole goal here is to really build, you know, a cash generating machine where you can put in $1 and then out on the, uh, on the other end, you, you generate, you know, $5 plus. The second prerequisite to scale that I think is incredibly important is that the founder, either the founder CEO or one of the other founders has to actually lead sales to start. This can be controversial for some people, but I think it's just critical, right? The reason this is important and that you cannot outsource this is because it's incredibly hard. Figuring out all of the solutions to the problems that I'm going to walk you through takes serious grit and willpower. No one understands the market and the problem like you do. And so to really dig in, get your hands dirty, uh, work through the problems, is just critical that the founder leads that process. The feedback that you, the, you learn in this process also drives product roadmap and product changes. You need to adjust the product uh, you know, quickly as you're continuing to iterate and scale to make sure that you're solving problems. And some of the early indicators and signals that you get back really become the basis for your messaging. So uh, this is you know, something that I think is incredibly important. As we think through uh, how to scale, the founder actually needs to be the first one to figure out a lot of these things that we're going to walk through. Uh, we talked a little bit about our story, Grin, you know, our, our story in early scale, uh, how to think about product market fit and that the founder really needs to lead the charge. As the founder, well, what are you trying to do before you scale the sales org? Uh, there's a handful of things that you really need to figure out before you can test the engine and then hire in the VP who's going to take it over. The first is your ideal customer profile. So uh, what is an ideal customer profile? Uh, the idea with an ideal customer profile, ICP is what we call it internally, is that not all customers love your product and that's okay, but some do. And so you really need to spend time figuring out who are the customers that have this kind of insane love for your product and not only who are they, but what do they look like? When you think about uh, running an early stage company, you have finite resources, right? You can't invest into every growth tactic. You can't build all types of products. Early stage companies are really about focus. And we've all heard about the Pareto distribution where 80% of the results come from 20% of the market or the opportunity. The, the idea with the ICP is that that is your 20%. These are the people who really love the product, have high usage, high renewal, uh, and you can figure out and define who they are. When you think about actually figuring out the attributes of the ICP, uh, it needs to be data-driven. So these are attributes that you can take and ideally enrich at scale. So things like location, headcount, revenue, and you really need to map this ICP. And then the goal is that you want to try to get the entire addressable market as much of it as you can for your ICP that's enriched. And then you want to put it into your CRM. So you want an existing database of prospects who you believe are qualified based on these criteria. And you want that to be in your CRM. And this is an important piece uh, before you think about scale. The second is a concept called sales pods. Sales pods is really helpful to me in thinking about how do we actually scale the sales organization. A sales pod, as I think about it, is really a unit of production with predictable inputs, which is your cost, and predictable outputs, which is your revenue. The inputs are typically headcount, right? Um, so the idea is rather than hiring one account executive or spending a certain amount of money on marketing and then figuring out how many BDRs for one account executive is you really need to group all of those resources into a sales pod. And the whole goal is just to figure out one sales pod to start. And this makes scaling up much easier to understand, right? Because to scale, you actually hire pods. You don't hire one-off people. 
I think of sales pods as like one cash generating module inside a larger system that is called the sales function inside your company. And your first goal as the founder, as you're leading the sales process is just to figure out one pod. So what is the headcount makeup that has a predictable pipeline and, and uh, kind of pipeline generation? How does that translate into actual closed one business? And what are the costs and what type of revenue does this generate? When you figure out one pod, it makes it much easier to scale up over time. Do you ever wish you invested early in some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Well, our crowd investors did invest early in many of those awesome IPOs. With our crowd, accredited investors can invest directly and easily in startups early before they IPO or get bought. Our crowd investors have benefited from companies IPOing like Beyond Meat and Lemonade, both of which have seen big returns since going public. And some of the companies have been acquired by buyers like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, Oracle, and Uber. Yum, yum, go team Uber. The investment professionals at our crowd have already invested hundreds of millions of dollars in over 200 companies with dozens of exits. So here is your call to action. Right now, you, yes, you can join our crowd's investment in Sciata Labs revolutionizing the $100 billion small and mid-sized business insurance market with seamless tech that empowers brokers to easily find the right solutions. According to the deal memo, Sciata Labs innovative InsureTech solution has already attracted six of the top 10 brokerages to its client list and is growing revenue at 10x year over year. Congratulations to them. You can get in early on Sciata Labs and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash twist. I recently wet my beak and placed a small bet on Syabra, a company that uses AI to uncover disinformation and expose fake news on social media. Seems like a brilliant idea. The R Crowd account is always free. Go to ourcrowd.com slash twist, rcrowd.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. The third piece is playbooks right? So playbooks are really a source of truth for best practices and rules of engagement for the sales org. Uh, so these, you know, these are the basics of how your sales pod, your BDR and your AE units of production, how they generate pipeline, how they find leads, how the AEs actually go and close deals. This ends up being a book that you can hand uh, a sales pod on the first day and say, here's like generally how to think about winning business inside our organization. BDRs, you go to these lead sources, you use these tools to, you know, enrich and make sure that they're, they're ICP qualified, or you look at them in the CRM in this way. AEs, this is how you actually close deals. You ask questions that understand pain, and then you, you do a product demo that maps the product usage to the pain, and that's how you actually close and win. The truth is that scaling the sales org is, is you obviously need innovation and creativity, but you want to do that within a tested framework. Because you don't want every salesperson trying to figure it all out again. The whole point of the founder leading sales is that you're figuring out a system that is scalable and repeatable. So uh, we walked through, you know, product market fit, the founder leading sales, and then there's a handful of things that you need to figure out. Ideally, you've mapped your ICP, right? You have playbooks, you've figured out exactly, you know, how one sales pod works. Now what you want to do is uh, test the engine. So what you're really doing with testing your engine is what I call like testing mini scale. So you're doing like kind of like a lightweight scale up before you really start to invest into heavy headcount growth. And what you're doing in this process is you're taking everything that you've learned, right? Who the ICP is, how a sales pod is structured, the playbooks for how to generate pipeline and close revenue. And you're hiring two more pods, one to two, you're typically going from one to three pods. And the goal here is to test if it works. So the reason you want to hire two pods is you want to benchmark performance. So you don't, you know, typically what we found is you don't want to hire, you know, one AE at a time. You want to hire two AEs at least, because then you can see if one of them is underperforming, you know, you have a, a benchmark, another headcount that just joined the organization that you can, you can compare them against. And what you're really doing in this kind of testing mini scale is watching the unit economics and watching the system to see if it'll break. So how does the ramp work? How fast were they able to get up and achieve the targets? Is the output that you thought a pod would generate, is that actually happening? What happens to the customer acquisition cost? Where does it break? And where do we actually need to dig in in order to fix it prior to, to scaling up? Um, so now you've gone from you know one to three pods, you've tested you know mini scale, and you're starting to get some sense into like, is this system that I've built, is it working? 
And does this scale the way that I think it's going to scale? And then from there, you want to move into hiring leadership. You know, oftentimes I'll talk to folks and this is where they want to start. Uh, you know, I take a pretty hard stance against you actually can't start with hiring leadership. You need to figure out what I've walked through prior. But it's critical within a growing organization to hiring great leaders who are going to run the functions for you. And sales is no different. Uh, so why hire a VP? There's really two things. This is the number one leverage on your time. So right as a as a founder, you have certain skills. You understand how to iterate, how to identify problems, how to sell a vision, these things. But at some point to really scale, you need you need somebody who's going to run it. And the second piece is they're better than you. This is someone who's a professional who's gone through this stage before, and you're not supposed to be an expert in sales as the founder at, at running functional sales. Uh, so ideally, you get someone who's much better than you. You really want to look for a few things. So the first is values and culture match. So does this person actually map to the type of organization that you want to build? The second is track record of performance. And this is really quantitative performance and specifics. So not were they around success, but were they responsible for success? Uh, it's, you know, a lot of people are able to join high growth organizations and kind of sit in the wings and draft off of the organization's success. But you want somebody who came in, has very specific results and how they performed. And then it's very important that they have the stage experience that you're in. Hiring someone to go from 20 million to 100 million in ARR is quite different than hiring someone from go to, to go from two to, let's say, 15 or 20 million in ARR. Uh, so you, they want to have the specific stage experience, ideally, that you're looking for. Uh, and then you want to empower that person, right? And so the way that I think about empowering leadership is really two dimensions. At this scale, really, numbers and culture are all that matter. So are they acting in accordance with the culture and the values that you've set forth? Are they empowering the team in the way that you want them to? And then are they hitting the numbers? Pretty simple. Uh, you know, sales is quantitative and really nothing else matters. So if they're, if they're hitting the numbers and they're acting within uh, the culture that, that, you've, that you've set, then you likely have someone who's great on your hands. I think in general, right, like managing VPs is an exercise in humility you know, typically these people are more experienced than you. And that's the whole point, uh, especially for a first time founder CEO, Grin is my first company. So, uh, you know, the challenge for me and the opportunity really is to bring in people who are much better at running sales than myself or my co-founder, Brian, who, who helped lead this process could ever be. And then the last, you know, piece that I'll put, which is kind of controversial, but I don't put, uh, I, I don't believe in putting VPs on performance improvement plans. They're supposed to tell us what to do, not the other way around. Uh, we're not hiring someone to learn on the job in, in our company. We're hiring people who can come in, take a function and scale it. And so they're either hitting the numbers and they're acting in accordance with the culture or they're not. And fortunately, you know, performance improvement plans are reserved for, you know, mid-level management and frontline employees, but not functional owners. So in summary, uh, you know, looking forward to the discussion after Jason, but, you know, a couple of things, product market fit is really all that matters. Don't scale sales and marketing without it. You put yourself in a death spiral and death trap. There's a bunch of things that you need to figure out and only one of the founders is really equipped to, to do that. It doesn't necessarily have to be the CEO, but someone who's on the founding team uh, and you can't really get around that. It's smart to test the engine prior to over-investing into growth because you really want to minimize downside. You can blow a lot of cash uh, if you haven't you know, made sure that it's going to scale up. And from my view, the whole goal is get the function to a place where you can then hand this to a great VP who's an incredible leader, incredible at holding people accountable and building the org, and then they take it the rest of the way. But you really need to get these things figured out uh, prior to doing so. Um, so that's the content that I have and, and look forward to digging into some Q&A uh, afterwards. Small businesses have always shown the ability to adapt, innovate and survive even more so this past year. I've seen it across my portfolio. Another way you can adapt is by growing and finding the right people to help scale your business. LinkedIn jobs will solve your hiring problems. How do I know this? Because it solved my hiring problems. I needed to add at least five people in the past three or four months because things are going gangbusters for me. Boom, all five positions filled thanks to LinkedIn jobs. Hiring is a huge burden for all founders. But if you're not great at hiring, your company will stall. Hiring is critical. Right now, you can get a free job listing by going to linkedin.com slash your startup. Y-O-U-R startup. LinkedIn.com slash your startup will get you your first job posting for free. Why should you use LinkedIn? It's fairly obvious. 
Everybody is on LinkedIn on a global basis. 740 million professionals are on LinkedIn right now. You can fill out targeted screening questions to get your role in front of the most qualified candidates with the experience, skills, and motivation that you need. They are really good at matching the people with the soft and hard skills you need and getting just really highly qualified people to apply for your job quickly. They have beautiful management tools so you can easily review, rate, and hone in your top candidates and get them through your workflow. So once again, get a free job listing right now. Thanks to our friends at LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash your startup. Terms and conditions, of course, apply because they're giving you something for free. LinkedIn.com slash your startup. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Okay, Brandon, great job. May, you're up. Share with us what you've learned at Lead IQ. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate you having me. Today, I will share our journey as we are scaling our startup. What worked, what didn't work, and what did we do? So my name is May. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Lead IQ. Lead IQ is a sales prospecting sales platform, and we are helping outbound teams with their workflow and efficiency. As Brendan mentioned earlier, it's really, really um, important for the, one of the founders to be the first salesperson of the company. And I went through a similar journey like what Brendan described. I was a product manager at Oracle prior to Lead IQ, and I have no knowledge about sales. But um, you just went there and figured it out. Today, we are at about 100 plus employees, and I'm working with a sales team of 20 plus. I'm going to share actually our own experience at building and scaling an outbound sales team. And because outbound sales is actually very, very important, most companies can start growing just with just inbound leads. However, after reaching a certain size, usually by the time they reach Series A or Series B, most companies have to really build out their outbound team and outbound strategy. Outbound is even more important for a startup because as a startup, you have no brand, you have no reputation, no credibility, and no one knows you. So you really have to get out there and tell people that you exist. I will walk you through our own journey at building and scaling our own sales team with a focus on outbound. So we actually launched Lead IQ at April 2015. In fact, we were um, part of the launch accelerator and Jason Calhanis was actually a big part of like, he gave us a lot of feedback as we are building the product and also launching that. So in the very beginning, um, our first few customers were all self-serve. They found us from the website and they self-sign up using credit cards. But in November 2015, we hired our very first marketing person who's experienced at prospecting. That's when we started stepping up our prospecting and outbound game. One thing that um, everyone should know is that first impression always matters. Now, how do people get a first impression of you? Usually, it's either from your website or from your content marketing or from your outbound emails. However, most people spend a lot of time preparing for your website. Typically, you can spend up to 10 or 100 hours preparing your website. Or you can uh, usually prepare about an hour a week, making sure that your blog post is updated, uh, you're sharing content. However, most people do not spend more than five minutes when you are crafting your outbound email. So most outbound emails are actually pretty generic. It's not doesn't really stand out. And it's really hard to get attention um, if your outbound email is not really fully thought out and crafted. Here is what we actually did in the early days. Um, Ryan, who's our prospector then, he led our growth and marketing. He spent a lot of time to really craft the cold email to stand out. He even made an individual music video for the people. You can see one of the examples of the email here. Hey, I'm not a gifted musician, but I made this for you. So lyrics are in the description, and then do you, do you want to talk? And then just a little brief description about what we do as a company. And here's the response. They really like it. Ryan, I'm in for a call next week. And so is my boss. Adding the whole sales team, this is how you get someone's attention. Again, today, many people are getting so many cold emails in their inbox. It's really hard to get their attention because most of them just get deleted. So in order for you to really get someone's attention, it's really important for you to personalize. Making a music video doesn't really scale. We no longer do that um, for our cold emails today. 
However, we still make it um, a culture. All of everyone in our sales team still personalize their cold emails and making an effort to make sure that their emails actually stands out. So after a first few months with Ryan doing the prospecting, we decided to hire our first SDR or sales development rep. Sales development rep um, are basically a sales rep who are focusing on mostly getting the first appointment by sending out a lot of cold emails as well as cold calling. So this is our first array into the outbound team. We hired the first SDR in May 2016. And as you can see, our opportunities um, starts growing because the SDR is actually helping us to get meetings with more companies and more, more people. However, we realized that the opportunities grew, but revenue is flat. Um, those opportunities, we were not actually successful in closing them. This is the part where Brandon mentioned a little bit where in the beginning, you started closing yourself and then after that, you pass it on to someone who's better than you. So we realized that I was actually starting to um, be overwhelmed and I wasn't able to actually nurture and really close all of the opportunities by myself. That's why the revenue is flat. So in July 2016, we hired our very first AE um, and since then, like the AE really helped and we started like closing more opportunities. After our first success with our first AE, we decided by November 2016, we started growing the AE team. We hired our second AE and we grew our SDR team from one to three. Actually, Brandon mentioned as well earlier that it's better to hire in pairs. It's better that you hire two SDRs. It's better that you hire two AEs. We didn't know it then. But now, if we want to go back um, and do this all over again, we are totally agree and we will probably do that the same, um, the, the same as what Brandon advised. We'll hire two SDRs in the beginning. We'll hire two AEs. It's always better if you can hire them in pairs because they have um, someone, uh, almost like a fellow, a mate, that, that they can actually um, share experiences. They motivate each other and there's someone that actually can compare who's doing better and learn from each other. For us, we just struggled through it and then we figured things out. By the time we grew the team, it's easier to figure what works and what didn't. So it took us quite a couple of months to figure things out. Since 2016 to 2017, we grew the team into three, but they really didn't work out. Originally, when we first thought, one SDR started generating this many opportunities for us. We wanted to scale that. We grew the SDR team from one to three. But with three SDRs, opportunities creation is basically stays flat. Something was wrong. What was wrong, actually, we did not have an SDR manager then. And we were not good at training and coaching the SDR team. So these SDRs are just struggling and flailing, and we were not able to help them as well. So we decided to restart the SDR team, and we hired two new experienced SDRs at this point of time. One thing going backwards, um, if we had a hindsight, one thing that we did was actually we always hired bottoms up. We hired the people first and then we hired managers a little later. You could have done it the other way around. I think maybe knowing what we know now, if we had hired a manager and then have the managers build the team, this could have happened faster. But at that point of time, we didn't know any better. This is the route that we took. Um, we hired two new experienced SDRs. And that helps because these SDRs already had the training from another company. They know what they're doing and we just leverage that experience and help us to continue growing the team. With these two new ex experienced SDRs, you can really see the difference where opportunity creation started growing again. And with that, by July 2018, we started hiring our third AE. So there are actually two ways to do this as we are speaking to many early companies. Some companies decided to build um, their own SDR team in-house, like what like you tried to do ourselves. Or in the beginning, you can also just hire an outsourced SDR agency firm. The cost-wise, the outsourced SDR team would be slightly cheaper to start with. Usually, it's around 6K to 10K per month, and you need to commit by quarter because there needs to be iteration. You need to figure out the messaging, what, uh, what's the ideal customer profile, who are the contacts that you'll be sending to. While um, the in-house um, SDR, it takes a little bit more time because you need to hire a manager, you need to coach them, you need to get them ramped up and successful 
However, in the long run, if you are committed towards building your own in-house SDR team, the long-term investment is much higher over here because this SDR will then grow and they can become an AE, they can actually become um, a customer success person, they will, they will be the feeder where they can actually grow into other roles within the company. In general, um, knowing what we know now, I would still recommend actually building your own in-house SDR team if you can um, invest and then, and then making sure that you'll go for the long run for that. So don't give up um, too fast. This is some of the learning as we, are, as we were building our own in-house SDR team. It took us about three-month ramp time before an SDR will be ramping up and successful and start generating the appointments that we're expecting them to. In general, it could be our um, inexperience of hiring in the beginning. We only get about 50% success. One out of two hires work out for us, which means like one out of two did not work out. Um, we went by quality versus quantity. Many companies out there actually had an activities goals for each of the SDR. Some of them can have like 50 to 100 activities. We went with lower activities goal because they really need to personalize. We want to go with quality. Every cold email needs to be personalized. It needs to be really good. Rather than sending 50 to 100 um, activities and yet most of them are generic and uh, spray and pray. We use multiple channels, email, call, as well as social. And one thing that will be really clear, you need to find someone who's resilient, someone who doesn't take no as an answer. And even if they get rejections, they will just get up and then do it again. Because being an SDR, you will be on the phone, you'll be sending a lot of emails. And in general, the response rate that they will only be getting yes around 3 to 10%. 10% is on the high side. On the average, it's actually 3%. So for us too, we realized a couple of things that helps us in building our own outbound sales team is we spend marketing dollar to actually promote our reps as industry experts. Our reps are our brand advocates where they are also sharing tips about how to do outbound, what cold emails work with them. They will share everything that they know about um, getting, getting an outbound appointment, um, an outreach, and we are becoming a, a thought leaders in the space and each of our reps are basically almost like a marketing person who are, we are putting them out there as brand advocates. Personalized emails is a really important aspect of outbound and we are instilling it as a culture within our strong, out, strong outbound team. You saw one of our very first cold email where Ryan made that music video. Now, we don't really uh, make the music video anymore as we mentioned. However, we are still writing really strong outbound emails. People write back to us, to our managers, that your team wrote really strong emails. And many of them will ask, like, I'm not interested um, to talk about LeadIQ, but I'm interested in hiring you. So that happened a lot of time. It is a risk that our sales team are actually being poached by our prospects. However, we, we, we believe that actually sends a strong message. We know what we're doing. We know how to do outbound. And that ties up with our product that we are selling as well. This is how outbound should be done well. After figuring things out with um, individual contributors, we started scaling our team. In April 2019, we hired SDR manager. The SDR managers then hired more people and then scaled what have worked for us and trained and coached the rest to follow a similar model. Then by May 2019, we started hiring head of sales and we scaled the AEs as well. Today, we have um, close to 10 SDRs and 10, 10 AEs right now who are, and we are continuing scaling that. We still have not hired our VP of sales yet. We went with a head of sales, which is more closer to the director level. I think if, um, if you can find a VP of sales, as Brandon mentioned, it's actually very, very, very highly recommended. A VP of sales can really scale it for you. In our experience, though, finding a VP of sales is not that easy as well. Um, a good VP of sales um, is in high demand. Everybody wants them. And it's quite difficult to attract a great VP of sales to actually join a startup, convince them of the, the high growth. So for us, we actually went with just a head of sales. And in our next round, likely, I think we'll be starting to find, a, 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 find basically the next level of VP of sales who can continue helping us to scale for the next level. Also, we realized that typically sales leaders have their own stage as well. There will be sales leaders who are good at scaling from zero to one, and then there will be sales leader who will be, who'll be good at scaling from one to 10, 
there'll be another kind of sales leader will be who will be good at scaling from 10 to 20 or 20 to 50. So there are different um, experience and different operational skills that's, dif- that's needed at different stages. And so that's really important as you are finding your um, sales leader as well. Uh, a VP of sales who's really good at a larger company may not be a good fit for you if you are still much earlier. So that's our experience as we are scaling our team. Um, a couple of takeaways that we have is that outbound sales is huge. It's critical for most company success. We are working with many outbound sales team and we can really see how it makes a big difference in people's revenue goal because it's something that you can control better usually than uh, how you can control inbound. All companies, especially startups, have to learn outbound. It is a long-term investment, but it is well worth it. And one thing that most companies sometimes don't realize is that SDRs are your brand advocates. It's good for you to invest in them, spend some marketing dollars and also brand awareness towards like what the SDRs are doing, make them to become thought leaders in your space. Because when you do that, um, it will the return is actually really, really high. And last but not least, it's actually personalized, personalized, personalized. We cannot emphasize this enough because as a company that are seeing many companies sometimes who are just sending very generic emails, that actually doesn't really generate high response. And you are going to be failing in the, in, in the long run because most emails, if it's not personalized, will end up in the spam inbox and it will hurt your um, inbox reputation in the long run as well. Invest in your outbound team and it will really help your company grow and scale. Thank you. If you're a business owner, you might be making running your business harder than it needs to be. Don't let old software and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. No matter what industry you're in, whether it's healthcare, manufacturing, advertising, hospitality, SaaS, or dozens more, NetSuite can streamline your workflow and improve your productivity. And that's what it's all about, efficiency. So stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch the old spreadsheets and software you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place, instantaneously. Whether you're doing 1 million or 100 million in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Join over 24,000 companies using NetSuite right now. So here's your CTA. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com slash twist. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash twist. netsuite.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Great job, Brandon. Great job, May. And I think you're both uh, in the eight figure revenue club. That's amazing. It's been great to work with both of your companies. I've got five questions. I'm going to start with my first one, which is how do you find just exceptional account executives in today's hyper competitive SaaS based market? Is it really hyper competitive or are there so many SaaS companies hiring so many people and so much experience out there? that there's just many, many more candidates available to you. It is hyper-competitive in our experience. Great sales person, great account executive is making so much money that it's really hard to convince them to leave their pipeline in where, at where, whichever company they're working at and jump into a new company. So it's actually really hard to find a great AE. Our take has been actually finding potential great AEs who have the traits who we believe we can train and coach to become an AE. That so far um, has been our route. That's why I think we hired quite a number of SDRs and then we promote and we train them to become an AE. That takes a little longer, but that has been our route so far. I think our next route would be trying to actually hire and recruit those AEs um, from the outside. We haven't actually done many of those outside AEs so far. And Brandon, how about you? What's your experience in terms of getting you know, an account executive and shaking them loose from an existing job versus training them up. But here, I specifically want to understand, let's say, not training, but hiring a top one. Is it even possible in today's crazy market? And and are they transient? Do, do they move, you know, around every two years? How do you think about getting elite account executives at Grin? 
Yeah, great question and um, huge challenge for sure, just with the rise of SaaS. For the first three or four AEs, I personally recruited them. So like I recruited them almost like how you'd recruit a VP. I carved out time every day, went on LinkedIn, scoured my network and reached out directly. One of our top AEs has now since transitioned into a management role and he still tells the story of like the feeling of when the CEO reached out directly to him to recruit him. So got it. That was how we did it. Secret weapon. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was how we did it in the early days. And then what I found is that like good people follow good people as well. Right. So I feel super fortunate to have the leader in the sales function who's leading the function, which was also a challenging hire, but great reputations, been through the scale at multiple companies. And so it has a big Rolodex. And so we've, we've, we've done a good job being able to recruit, you know, heavy hitters in. And I agree with you, May, we, uh, we, we, we hire great BDRs and then train them up as well. And lots of our AEs started out as BDRs. So my second question, um, what do you think about remote work? Obviously, we've all had to go to remote work during the pandemic. Do sales executives work better at home? Or better in the office? What will drive better results and grow your company faster? We'll start with you, May. It's an interesting question. I see it both ways. Um, we are transitioning to become a remote company. Company. We are getting rid of our leases. Everyone is just becoming remote now. We still have co-working spaces as collaborative spaces. But we don't see... I think people like the extra time not having to commute. Um, but... What we are seeing is that collaboration and communication becomes more of a challenge. So we are, we are now actually testing out having a virtual deal room where we would actually come together and discuss as if it's a collaboration. We are testing out different things in order to help with communication. Got it. But we believe this is the future, right? We are transitioning. I think in the future, like more and more companies and teams will just become remote and we are need to figure it out. Brandon, where are you at with this? Are you going to try to get people to come back to the office in Sacramento? Uh, or are you like May, just going with the flow and, you know, building and <laughs> moving to a remote style approach specifically for the sales team? So we're remote, uh, switched to remote, leaned into it. And we, we didn't really skip a beat. I think you you do miss certain things like the in-person collaboration. But the way that I would like, get at that problem is it's all about the operating system for the company and the department. So the playbooks, the ICP, the cadence at which people check in, how they get feedback on deals. Like you actually do need a really well-baked machine and you mm. need uh, touch points that are documented and you need process around closing and how they can actually offer discounts and like negotiation frameworks. And you need all of that. Cause I think without that, the default is like, go knock on the boss's door. It's like, hey, look, I got right, and you can't do that. Yes. And so it works for us because we have all of that documented. But I think without that, like operational, like operating system for the sales department, so you're interesting. Screwed. So interesting, you say that. I tell my team now, if it's not on Notion, we didn't do our job. Like, I want every single thing on a Notion page. When you are in our weekly meeting, pull up your Notion page for what we're talking about here. I want everything documented. Anything that's a process, a checklist, a policy a strategy. It's got to be, got to be on Notion today. Um, I'm just curious, of your total spend for the year, what did office space look like in, you know, 2020 or 2021? And what will it look like in the future when you get out of these leases? Or, or what percentage of your, of your spend is your leases? So I, I I don't know about percentages of overall spend, but I can tell you we will sp- or yeah we're savings we, will be <laughs> yeah we will spend fifteen percent of what we were spending prior on office space hyper scaled down um, remote first collaborative workspaces but no like no one comes into the office each day and then we repurpose that money into in person events so oh okay so it'd be neutral. You won't be spending more or less. You'll just be spending it differently. Yeah. And we'll go to quarterly whole, uh, sorry, quarterly management. So uh, mm-hmm. leadership and then director level, quarterly in person, and then twice a year whole company is what we're thinking so far. But we'll talk to the CFO and see where that all nets out long term. 
Fantastic. And May, um, how much were you spending in dollar amount on Office Space Ballpark? And then what do you think you'll spend on an ongoing basis? Yeah, I think Ballpark, we were spending close to 300K a year-ish, uh, maybe a little more, 300 to 400K a year um, prior to COVID. We are actually still in the lease right now. It'll be ending in a couple of months. But we are definitely also like shuffling that budget towards like once COVID is over, more annual company between and meetings because we are now hiring out of 10 states and out of 10 countries. Hmm. So what do you think yeah. the cadence will be for your management team and for your sales team getting together? What do you think the, the, the ongoing cadence will be, May? We think it should be quarterly. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. And that's so the same for Brandon. So both saving hundreds of thousands of dollars, but de redeploying it. So the loser in this situation is the landlord. The winner <laughs> is company productivity and no commuting. And for the people who do have to commute, <laughs> there'll be less people on the road. And we're seeing this across our portfolio. And this is why there are, I, you know, like hundreds of thousands or millions of square feet in every city that tens of millions of square feet, hundreds of millions of square feet in some cities. Um, okay, let's talk about SDRs. My third question, they seem to burn out quickly. Um, and so I was going to ask this question about how do you deal with that? But it does seem like you already answered that, that you see SDRs as a way to get to AE. So let's talk about that. Um, I'm going to adapt my third question from how do you how do you deal with SDR burnout to how do you graduate SDRs to AEs? Why don't you start with that one, uh, Brandon, from Grin? Yeah, so we... Um it's a kind of controversial, but we have like l levels of SDRs. So okay. uh, there's entry level, there's like principal, and then there's senior. And so you have right. you within the SDR role, there's seniority. And so we try to make it such that the high performers can always see like what's next for them. Got it. And there's little pay bumps and, you know, incent equity incentive to get to that next level. Um, so there's this incentive where they feel like they're they're tracking and then uh, we have an AE readiness program where there's like high performing AEs in collaboration with leadership. They'll take the people who've raised their hand and said, hey, uh, I want to be an account executive and we'll start to coach them through the process. And then in order to actually make the jump to the AE, they obviously need to apply for the role, but they need to go through like mock presentations. There's this whole system that they go through that proves that they can make the jump um, because we've had, you know, we've had in the past folks try to make the jump from AE to S from SDR to AE and they fail. And that's quite uh, a bad situation. Yeah, then to be you, in. Everybody loses. You lose a productive SDR and they lose because they're no longer at the company and they've, yeah, they, they didn't, they didn't uh, clear the hurdle. And may, what's your thoughts on that? Very similar where I think promotion path is very clearly laid out from the very beginning. Hmm. For us, we lay out three different paths. Actually, um, some are going to account executives. Some can be an account manager, where it's like going going after expansion of existing customers instead. And then some is you can also go into implementation consultant or account um, or customer success in the future. All right. Let me go to my fourth of five questions. How do you deal with average performers? We all know how you deal with low performers. You get rid of them. But somebody who's a perennial just you know, year after year, quarter after quarter, hitting that 50%, 60%, 75% of quota. So there's money coming in. It's not under 50% of quota where it would be easy to cut them. How do you deal with the average or slightly under average performer, Brandon? Mm -hmm. uh, so first- And I'm not, if you're watching this and you work for Brandon, <laughs> this is to your benefit that we put this out on the table here. So our, um, look- we're trying at Grin, we're trying to build a company uh, that's high performance that people love to work at. But high performers want to be held accountable and they also want to have fun at work. And you can't just have fun at work if you're not being held accountable. Like the whole thing falls apart. Like it's not fun to just come have a relaxed environment and no one hits their numbers. Like that's actually mm -hmm. a bad company. Like you're going to fail. So, number one thing is you have to hit numbers. Like you have to achieve the targets. We have uh, levels. So first level is a get well plan. So it's it's not a performance improvement plan, but it's like, hey, look here, we're going to spend some time with you. The management engages, puts together a plan. Uh, we want to see performance improve in these areas. And then we move them from there onto a performance improvement plan where you need to see specific deliverables and milestones. And I think the culture that we've built is such that there's not a lot of lone wolves. Like we try to get lone wolves out. So it's very team first. And the team rallies. What about a perform? What about a high performer who's a lone wolf? 
I'm at 120%, but I don't work well with others. What do you do? I they wouldn't I wouldn't have them work at Grin. Really? Yeah. Wow, cutthroat. Yeah. All right, May. Um, how do you deal with somebody who's hitting that 75%, 60%? They it's kind of like they're they're paying for themselves and a little bit, but they're not kind of hitting their numbers. And then uh, do you have the lone wolf issue? So so two 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 questions there. Yes. Something very similar to what Brendan has done as well. We typically try to coach them up first. We we hire like with um, our managers right now. Like coaching is uh, a big a big thing, right? We try to coach them. Can we make them better? Was mm. because as mentioned also like we actually hired more junior reps and we try to train and coach them up. So I think our patience usually is a little longer mm. because we know we are hiring a little bit more um, of the people with a little less experience. Than people who have had experience and we're expecting them to just go. So, but we do give them a little bit more time to try to get up there. If they don't still get up there after a period of time, then that's when we start putting them into the performance improvement plan. In terms of Lone Wolf, totally agree. I think culture is everything. We realize that it's better to have a team that works well together rather than someone who's like doing really well, but yet not working well with the team. So got it. Yeah. So let's wrap with email as a channel. Has email, and I'll start with you, May, since it's your wheelhouse with Lead IQ. Has email been burned out as a channel? Not for external communication. Got it. Internal so internally, it's, yeah, people want to be Slack. Yeah. Yes, but for Are external, people selling over Slack, because I saw Slack added like the ability to DM people, but then they throttled it because you weren't allowed to DM people. Because I guess they were afraid people were going to get spammed. So they were like, it'd be great if you could spam people. <laughs> or it'd be great if you could contact anybody at any organization. And then they kind of neutered that function. I thought it was a critical mistake on Slack's part. I would have let people deal with the first 10 inbound and then change their settings instead of making it now not work. Because I haven't gotten one invite to DM with people. Um, were you thinking that might be an interesting channel, May? The Slack DMs? Um, I think it's going to be pretty interesting once you are part of like a big Slack community group, right? Which mm. that happened because once you are in a big uh, Slack community group, you're just in a general channel and then people can start DMing you whether or not you know about Oh, you're them, saying like right? on a community Slack. In a community right? Slack, so if, exactly. Yeah, we have a rule against that on the This Week in Startup Slack. If you, if you DM people and try to sell something, people will screenshot it and then we disinvite you so don't do it on this week at startups right uh, what do you what do you think brandon is, is email losing its efficacy and do people call people on the phone anymore so do, yeah i mean depends on the industry right so for our we sell into market marketers inside e-commerce brands like it's actually quite hard to get cell phone numbers for them compared to like if you're selling into real estate or something where their their numbers on the website they want you to call right. them up right so my view email is super powerful for outbound prospecting. However, you have to focus on quality and personalization. A lot of what mm. May hit on in her presentation, the days of like spray and pray mass email, even if it's done in like a way that's through Gmail and throttled back, like you need to personalize. You're not going to get mm. responses if it feels canned. So still so less is more, more personalized, two or three touch points maybe per email. Hey, I notice uh, on your LinkedIn, blah, blah, blah. I notice you work for this company. Just really personalize that first sentence or two. Yep. It's not, and it's Got not it. just emails. I think you need to use multiple channels. So mm -hmm. one email and then leave a voicemail, add them on LinkedIn, like use multiple Got social. It. Yeah, that will really, really help because otherwise... That's what I do with founders. If I if I find a founder that I'm interested in meeting or somebody I'm interested in having a guest on the podcast, I'll add them on LinkedIn, email them, follow them on Twitter, exactly. yada, yada. All right, listen, this has been absolutely fantastic. It's great to be in business with both of you and to watch both of you uh, just, you know, hit that eight-figure club. <laughs> it's really hard to get to with SaaS and be such great, amazing uh, founders and develop, really, and share this knowledge. I think it's really great for people listening, and we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups.